Tonight I'd like to speak about one factor of mind that plays a critical role both in terms of happiness in our lives and also on, in the possibility of awakening, of liberation. And from one perspective, we could say that the entire path rests on the cultivation and the maturing of the, this one particular uh, mental factor. And this is the quality or factor of equanimity. Equanimity is the translation of the Pali word upeka. And it refers to what in the uh, Abhidhamma are called the universal beautiful qualities, which is really a nice term for wholesome states of mind. The universal beautiful qualities. These are qualities that arise in every wholesome moment. They arise all together. So, for example, in every moment of mindfulness, all the other beautiful qualities of mind are present. Qualities such as faith, of non-greed or generosity, of non-hatred, non-delusion, of pliancy of mind, So equanimity as one of these beautiful qualities, these wholesome qualities, it's the factor which is defined as or understood as neutrality, neutrality of mind. And Bhikkhu Bodhi has a very interesting translation, literal translation of what Ubeka means. And even though it's not a usual English phrase, I think it captures the meaning of it. It captures the sense of it. He says it could literally be translated as there in the middleness. So equanimity is that quality of mind that is there in the middleness of things. It's a quality of evenness. And when it's highly developed, this evenness or balance becomes unshakable. One of the images of this quality of equanimity that has inspired me for so many years was in the writings of Joseph Campbell in his book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he's describing the basic archetype, the Buddha archetype, and he uses the Buddha's historical life as the uh, template for this archetypal journey. And he's describing the Bodhisattva under the Bodhi tree, the night of his awakening. And as most of you know from the story, the legend, the Bodhisattva sitting under the tree and all the forces of Mara, you know, are attacking him, are attacking the mind. And they're the same forces that confront us every time we sit. It's as if we're sitting under the Bodhi tree. And so the forces of desire and lust and anger and fear. So in in Joseph Campbell's telling, he has a very mythopoetic way of describing this. And he's describing these attacks of Mara, the refrain that he keeps using He says, and the mind of the great being was not moved. And I find that just such a beautiful expression of freedom, 
you know, and fearlessness. In the face of whatever arises, the mind of the great being was not moved. So that would be something to aspire to. And it's what the development and growth and maturation of equanimity brings about. So yesterday morning, I was talking a little bit about <clears throat> Upasaka Ki, you know, this Thai laywoman who was reputed to be fully enlightened. And her book, the book of her teachings, Pure and Simple, is a very powerful, straightforward and direct expression of her understanding. And she used the phrase, as I, as I read yesterday morning, she used the phrase normalcy of mind. And again, this is an unusual English term. We, we wouldn't normally use that. So when I first came across it, I wrote to Tan Jeff, who's an American Buddhist nun, a monk, who translated these teachings of uh, Upasaka Ki. And I asked him, well, what was the Thai word that normalcy was the translation of? You know, and what, does, what did the Thai word actually mean? And this is what he wrote. Normalcy is a translation of the Thai word pokati. And its usual, usual range of meanings includes ordinary, at equilibrium, and unaffected by events. Upasaka Ki tends to use it more in the latter two senses. When the mind is pokati, at normalcy, it is balanced, neutral, equanimous. It remains unmoved in the face of pleasure and pain. So this is really what this quality or this mind state of equanimity is about. But as we try to get a sense, both conceptually and also in our experience, of what equanimity really is, we need to take some care. Because in English, when we say or we speak of neutrality of mind, neutrality of mind, we might hear in that a certain, certain quality of indifference or withdrawal from experience, being disconnected. But as we actually explore how equanimity manifests in our lives, we see that it is not disconnected at all. That's not at all what equanimity is about. A better phrase, perhaps, than neutrality might be equanimity as a spacious impartiality, a mind that's open, spacious, and impartial. And when we, when we can taste the flavor of that, the spacious Im- impartiality, we can really begin to see why it's called a beautiful factor. So the first way we can experience this kind of cool, impartial, open state of mind 
is in the peace and balance it brings in our ordinary daily lives. Now each one of us, just in our our normal life in the world, is touched by what the Buddha called the eight vicissitudes, the eight great vicissitudes or the eight great changes. And these are the eight changes that are occurring repeatedly in the course of our lives. They're the changing conditions of gain and loss, you know, of praise and blame, of fame and disrepute, of pleasure and pain or pleasure and sorrow. When equanimity is present, we ride these waves of change with balance, with ease. Without it, if we don't have equanimity and if it's not been strengthened in us and developed in us, it's as if we're tossed about by these waves. Instead of riding them with ease, we're tossed about and then it's as if we're crashing into the changing conditions of our life, which is why people are often out of balance and suffering in one way or another. We can see the play of gain and loss, just this alternation of gain and loss in so many areas of our lives. Now we often think of gain and loss in terms of material possessions. We gain some things, we lose some things. But actually we can feel the effect of gain and loss in any situation that we're particularly invested in or we're identified with as being I or mine or self. Now just take the world, and this is in the material realm, you take the world of finances. There are people I know whose quality of their day depends on what the stock market does. Stock market goes up, they have a great day. Stock market goes down, they're depressed. Gain and loss, this is an endless cycle. We, say, we see the play of gain and loss in tribal loyalties. And we can see this either on a local level or on a global level. We can see it in relatively minor situations or really tragic ones. You know, if you live in New England, it might be in the feeling you have at a Red Sox-Yankee game. It's amazing the intensity of feeling that can be generated because of tribal loyalty. You know, elation at a win, dejection at a loss. I know people who have been depressed for days, you know, if the Red Sox lose. (laughs) Gain and loss, it's just part of life. It's what happens. We can see it a lot, and especially this year, the sway of gain and loss in the intense political dramas that play themselves out. You know, particularly in election years, 
know, if, if you happen to be a person who follows political news closely, do you notice the change in your feelings just according to the news cycle and the cycle of polls? If the person you're invested in is high in the polls, if something good happens, we feel great. If something bad happens, you know, and the polls are bad, we feel depressed, we feel badly ourselves, and we're just tossed about. These changes are inevitable. They're always going to happen. Or, you know, on more tragic levels, just think of the play of gain and loss in the tribal loyalties of religion or ethnicity and the warfare that happens and people getting killed because of it. Right here on retreat, you can see the same vicissitude of gain and loss and the reaction to it in your meditation practice. You know, in the assessment of ourselves as yogis. Actually, I'm sure none of you do that. (laughs) But just as an example, hypothetically, you know, there's a calm, concentrated sitting thought comes, oh, now I've got it. Gain. You know, and we expect it to stay. The next sitting, maybe we're filled with restlessness or boredom. Loss. And then the thoughts come, what did I do wrong? You know, how did I lose it? And we're constantly tossed by gain and loss and all the feelings, you know, that are associated with it. Gain and loss untempered by equanimity, by balance, by staying in the middleness where we can just see and observe this flow of of changes. It keeps us in servitude to the inevitably changing conditions of our lives. It's not as if this flow of gain and loss is going to stop. It's what characterizes our lives. And so the question of freedom is how are we with that? Are we remaining in the middleness? Are we remaining in balance? Or are we tossed about by it through our own reactivity? We can also notice the reaction in our minds in the face of praise and blame. That's another of life's vicissitudes. This became very obvious to me, and I think this is true of any author, when One Dharma first came out. And of course, these days, it's on Amazon, and it has all the customer reviews. You know, people who write in with their opinions of the book. So here were, here were a few of the, the opinions, the customary views of one dharma. Okay. Concise, enlightening, takes one to the core of Buddhism. I love it. A practical, enlightening book that is a pleasure to read. And then... <laughs> One Dharma not emerging in this book 
not as significant a book as the title might suggest. And this is my very favorite blame comment. This is pretty silly stuff. <laughs> so from enlightening to silly in one move of the cursor. <laughs> and when it first came out and I read these, you know, of course you're very excited and you know, the book comes out and you, so you look online 20 times a day. And, <laughs> and it was just so interesting to watch the reaction, you know, the, the praise ones oh, and kind of feel enlivened and the heart feels happy. And then the blame ones, oh, you know, feel a little depressed. Fortunately, Dharma practice came to the rescue, you know, because I could see what was happening you know, in my mind. And I remembered, and I called to mind, the universal nature of praise and blame. Even the Buddha was praised and blamed. You know, so I began to see the humor in the situation. And it allowed the mind to rest more easily, just in an equilibrium. Yeah, there's praise, there's blame. The mind can stay in the middleness. The mind can stay with equanimity. So the Buddha expressed this unwavering power of this mind state when it's developed. In one of the verses of the Dhammapada, he said, as a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. And it's just, we just sit, stand, live with that kind of balance, with that kind of stability. And the mind of the great being was not moved. So the third pair of vicissitudes, there's gain and loss, praise and blame. The third pair has to do with fame and disrepute. And this is just really more generalized forms of praise and blame. There's a great lesson in examining this whole notion of fame and disrepute. Even though sometimes the mind hankers after fame or you know, shrinks from disrepute, it's really helpful to realize that both of these really only exist in other people's minds. And that if we're well established in the non-remorse of good sila, right, if we can take our stand on that foundation, it's not difficult to remain quite unmoved and equanimous in the face of these external projections. Now, people's minds are going to do lots of things and project a lot of things. But if we know in ourselves, you know, that we're basically committed to the precepts of non-harming, then the fame or disrepute, they really become meaningless because they are just projections of other people's minds. Now, the last pair of changes is perhaps the one that's most challenging for us. 
and touches the deepest part of our conditioning, and that is the alternation in our lives, the inevitable alternation of pleasure and pain, or happiness and sorrow. For almost all of us, there is this tremendously deep, we could almost say hardwired conditioning to hold on to what's pleasant and to push away what's unpleasant. And it's precisely this conditioning that powers the roller coaster of hope and fear in our lives. You know, we keep alternating between hope for what's pleasurable, fear of what's painful. Saida Utejaniya had just some very apt words about this. He said, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experiences. You don't even want the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dhamma? And what's so interesting is that it's so true. You know, we just, we only want what's pleasant. We don't even want the smallest bit of unpleasantness. And yet it's not life. That's not the Dhamma. It's not the truth of how things are. So with increasing clarity and understanding that comes from our own attentiveness, not, this is not a, you know, philosophic teaching, when we really are paying attention to the flow of our experience, we see that these changes between pleasant and unpleasant, between happy and sad, these changes are inevitable, they're part of what it means to be alive. And it's not that pleasant feelings go away because we've done something wrong, you know, or that painful feelings come because we've done something wrong. It's just the nature. It's the nature of having a mind and body. So there's just one story, which many of you probably have heard in previous talks, but it was such a striking example for me of this. And this, this happened years ago. I was teaching at a wilderness ranch in New Mexico, uh, and it was a retreat for environmental social activists. And this wilderness ranch, it's way out in uh, one of the national forests in northern New Mexico. And on the last day of the retreat, we all went on a hike. Uh, there was a river that ran through the ranch. And we went on a hike along the riverbank. And the way back, it had rained before, and I had slipped on a rock, and in slipping, I hyperextended my knee. But I knew, I knew something wasn't right, but it seemed okay at the time, and I walked back. And that night, I was giving a talk, and in those days, I was sitting cross-legged, and I, the thought came to me, oh, better sit in a chair for this talk. But I didn't listen to my mind, sat cross-legged. By the end of the talk, I couldn't stand something had happened with my knee, and I had to be carried back to my, where I was staying. So my mind went a little crazy, because I had a busy teaching schedule that whole summer. I was going to be going to Europe and a lot of travel, and I couldn't walk. 
so for a good part of the night, my mind is just going back and forth and worry and fear and just the whole trip. Finally, it settled down. And I just, okay, this is what happened. And one of my little Vipassana mantras came to the foreground. And it was, anything can happen anytime. Now, this was completely unexpected. But that's the nature of things. Unexpected things happen all the time. Anything can happen anytime. So that became my little mantra. What was interesting, you know, we might hear it and think, oh, that's kind of a paranoid, defensive way to live. Oh my God, anything can happen anytime. You know? But that wasn't the effect at all. It was exactly the opposite. By just acknowledging the truth of that, yeah, anything can happen anytime. It's like my heart relaxed. I stopped fighting it. I stopped trying to defend against it. I realized, yes, this this is how things are. And the mind came to a place, really, of great equanimity. It made it much easier to deal with what had to be dealt with. So we're not going to change the fact of change. That's the nature. That's the Dharma. But we can change the way we're relating to it. And equanimity is the great gift of the practice. We can come to that place that really is quite unmoved. You know, and when, when highly developed, even unshakable in the face of these changes. This is a few words from the Buddha. He said, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, come and go like the wind. To be happy, stand like a great tree in the midst of them all. He has these great just nature images. He lived a lot of his life out in nature. That's just that sense of standing like a great tree in the midst of all the changes. So this is the first type of equanimity. You know, it's this evenness and composure in the midst of life's changes. And it's a practice. We need to call it to mind. We need to develop it. We need to remember it and really strengthen that place. The second manifestation of equanimity is as the last of the Brahma Viharas. You know, those mind states called the divine abodes of loving kindness, of compassion, sympathetic or empathetic joy, and equanimity. And it's very interesting to really understand the relationship of equanimity to the other three, because they're not unrelated. It's precisely the quality of equanimity, that quality of impartiality, that allows the other three of metta, of compassion, of mudita, to be boundless. You know, where we're not discriminating between beings, where we can have metta for all beings or compassion for all beings. It's equanimity which provides the basis for that boundlessness. Equanimity 
as I mentioned a little bit earlier, allows us to stay unmoved in the face of praise and blame. And there's one teaching of the Buddhas which brings together in just a very striking way the power of equanimity, the universal quality of metta, of loving-kindness, and the application of both in what I spoke about the first week mindfulness internally, externally, and both. And so this is a teaching that the Buddha gave on not so much right speech as right listening. Really is telling us how we should listen. I'll read this and it's, I love this. It's tremendously challenging. Okay, so he's he's talking to the bhikkhus. He said, bhikkhus, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, or spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Here in bhikkhus, you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. Okay, so just picture this. Somebody is speaking with you, and they're speaking in a very untimely way. They're telling lies in a very harsh and aggressive manner, wanting to harm you, filled with hate. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. You think you could do that? Challenging. And I, I love it because first it points to what mindfulness externally means. So we're actually mindful of someone else's speech. Where we're not react, we're just noticing, we're we're mindful, we're oh, they're speaking what is untrue. They're speaking harshly, they're speaking in such and such a way. Mindfulness externally allows us to remain in a place of equilibrium, equanimity, where we're not reactive, and there's at least a chance then, from that place of equanimity, that we can see the suffering of the other being and feel compassion. You know, be compassionate for their welfare, be filled with loving kindness. And so it's beautiful how it all comes together. You know, this mindfulness externally, allows for equanimity, which makes possible the boundless quality of metta and compassion. Not easy. But it's a practice, and I, I like this teaching so much because it's a reminder that no situation is outside of our practice. And that how we are and how our minds are is 100% our responsibility.
it doesn't matter what the other person is doing. No one makes us feel a certain way. So this is, this is a powerful lesson when we can take 100% responsibility for our own minds. Challenging, but it's really good to have that as a reference point for our practice. You know, we'll fall short many times, but we have that understanding. Yes, this is something that we can aspire to. This is something that we can practice. This quality of equanimity, you know, of evenness, of being there in the middleness, non-reactivity, that, as I said, gives the other Brahma-viharas the boundlessness, the boundless quality. And there's a a beautiful uh, haiku by the Japanese poet Isa, which kind of captures this feeling of all-inclusiveness. He wrote, in the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. You know, it's just that feeling, yes. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. It's like the Dalai Lama saying, you know, that one of his practices, that he tries to treat everyone he meets as an old friend. What a beautiful way to go through life you know, with that kind of connectedness. So there's equanimity as the balance in the midst of all the vicissitudes, all the changes. There's equanimity as the Brahma-vihara, which imparts the boundless quality to all the others. And the third manifestation of equanimity really takes us very deep into the realm of meditative awareness. So this is the wisdom aspect of equanimity. And it refers to uh, something I mentioned last week in the teachings of the third Zen ancestor, his famous teachings on the faith mind, where he said the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And what does the great way mean? The great way means the free mind, you know, the experience of the free mind. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, everything is clear and undisguised. So that's a very simple and direct teaching. When we have equanimity, when both attachment and aversion are absent, then everything in our experience becomes clear and undisguised. And so in this equanimity, as we practice the non-reactivity, the openness, the impartiality with respect to what's ever arising, is what supports and strengthens all the factors of enlightenment, of awakening. And as these get stronger, we gain 
deeper and deeper insights into the three characteristics. You know, the basic characteristics of experience. With equanimity and all the associated awakening factors, we begin to see in a more and more refined way the truth of change. So it's not just conceptual knowledge, we're actually seeing it. And we're seeing it on a macro level, you know, the changes of the weather, the changes of the seasons. But we're also seeing it on a momentary level. As the mindfulness gets strong, we're seeing the arising and passing moment after moment. There's something which I call NPMs, and that's noticings per minute. You know, and when we start our practice, the NPMs are fairly low. Maybe there's five NPMs or 10 NPMs. But as we really practice being attentive, the NPMs go way up. You know, and even within one breath, one in-breath, or one movement, you know, in, in walking or movement of the body, there are so many things that are happening. You know, we can see hundreds of NPMs or thousands of NPMs. And it comes when the mind is equanimous, when it's not in a reactive state. So the truth of change becomes so vivid to us. We experience more vividly the truth of dukkha. You know, the unreliable or unsatisfying nature of experience precisely because they're continually changing. It's not that experience is bad. It's just that it's incapable of finally fulfilling us because whatever arises is also passing away. But we keep, you know, <laughs> we keep biting on the bait. You know, many of you are probably familiar with the old Nasruddin story of his eating the hot chili peppers and his mouth is burning and his friends are asking him, you know, why do you keep on eating them? And he says, I keep waiting for a sweet one. Well, that's what we're doing. We keep waiting for the thing that is going to bring completion, that is going to bring fulfillment. But we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking in things that in their very nature don't last. And I don't know if this is right English. They don't last quickly. (laughs) They don't last long. Things, things are arising and passing very quickly. You know, the, there are so many places in the suttas uh, where the Buddha says, and this teaching you know, is very powerful. People got enlightened just listening to this teaching, where he said, everything that arises will also pass away. It's so simple. And we do know it. We do know it on you know, many levels but we don't really know it. Because if we really integrated that understanding, we wouldn't be attached to anything. Attachment doesn't make sense when we're really seeing that whatever arises has the nature to pass away. And so it's equanimity and 
the strengthening of all the other awakening factors that allows us to see this, you know, so that, so that we really are integrating it, you know, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. And as we see the impermanent, unsatisfying nature of phenomena, we also understand the inherent selflessness of it all. That nothing is lasting long enough to be called self, to be called, to be called I. And at times we even see consciousness itself as continually dissolving. You know, we can't, we can't, we don't have consciousness or the knowing as this holdout of self, because that too is dissolving and passing away. We really see with greater and greater clarity that all experiences arise out of the appropriate conditions. If you have the causes and conditions for something to arise, it appears. The causes and conditions change, it disappears. And that's the whole play of our lives. And an image which captures this, which I find very uh, pertinent, is just the image of a rainbow. Because we know that a rainbow is simply an appearance that arises when the conditions are there of water, you know, of moisture, of air, of light. Conditions come together in a certain way, a rainbow appears. The conditions change, rainbow disappears. Now what's interesting is that the rainbow is at the same time both intensely vivid and completely insubstantial. So it's not that we're not seeing the rainbow, we are seeing the rainbow. And it's a very vivid experience. So it's arising but it has no intrinsic substance. There's no intrinsic self-existence apart from the appearance due to causes, due to conditions. So if you remember, I think it was in the, the first week of this month, where I quoted that Tibetan teacher in describing experience where he said, things are real, but not really real. And that's... <laughs> That's the nature of things. You know, they're arising, they're vivid, and they're insubstantial, they're selfless, they don't belong to anyone. You know, so as the equanimity and the other factors of awakening get stronger, our insight into these three characteristics of impermanence, of unreliability of dukkha, of selflessness, we begin to experience them from so many different angles and so many different perspectives. And sometimes we experience the truth of change and it's tremendously exhilarating. You know, when we're first seeing the rapid arising and passing of phenomena, it's like a whole new world is opening up. And there's joy and there's rapture and there's exhilaration. And then we come to a phase that has an interesting name in the text. It's kind of the stage of insight of seeing what is the path and what is not the path. 
because it's very easy to mistake that exhilaration and joy and rapture. Oh, this is the path. Now I'm finally getting someplace. And that's a great uh, trap because those states themselves are impermanent and selfless. And so we have to come through equanimity to really be mindful of those states as well, that those are not the path, they're just a byproduct of what happens. So we need to be mindful of them too. Oh, joy, rapture, excitement, clarity, all of that are just other things to be noted, not to be held on to. You know, sometimes we go through very distressing stages, as many of you know. Vipassana is not a bliss trip. You know, people I think sometimes come to retreat thinking, oh great, I'm going to spend a week or two weeks or a month meditating, nobody's going to bother me, I'll just be sitting in bliss. (laughs) Unlikely. It may come sometimes. But we often go through stages of profound distress where we're really tuning in to the dukkha aspect, the unsatisfying aspect. You know, where where we really see there's no place to take a stand, where everything is falling away and dissolving. But if we can persevere through all of these different stages, through the exhilaration, through the distressing times, and if we just can maintain some level of equanimity, of just seeing it as part of the passing show, then we come to a very powerful stage or place in practice, and it's called equanimity about all formations. And in this state, having gone through the roller coaster of great joy and distress, the mind comes to a place where the equanimity is very well established and it is just not moved by pleasant things, by unpleasant things. It's really a state of deep delight that's born of peace, not born of pleasure. And it's a very different state. So there's a Thai, it's a Thai monk, some of you may know Ajahn Jamnian, uh, he teaches on the West Coast uh, occasionally. And he has quite an extraordinary mind. And he describes this place of equanimity about formations. He said, at some point the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own, a perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. And that's really a place of tremendous ease in the practice. There's no one doing anything. It's all rolling on by itself. In this place of equanimity, with regard to everything arising. This place of equanimity is likened, it's so, it's so powerful, it's likened to the mind of an arhant. said that an arhant, that's the space in which they dwell. Of course, 
as we experience it, it's good to remember that we're actually not quite yet arhans. But it's a taste. It's a taste of what's possible. You know, and it's what the Buddha referred to many times in the Satipatthana Sutta when he said, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. You get a sense just just the flavor of that freedom, just the mind abiding independent, not clinging to anything in the world. The whole world is happening. We're experiencing everything, but we're not caught. We're not caught in our own reactivity. So I'll just mention briefly a few specific ways or exercises we can do to strengthen this quality of equanimity, because it's such a foundational support for our whole practice. And some of them have to do with recollections, and some come simply through continuous mindfulness. You may know the, the Ajahn Chah's famous example. It's, it's really a beautiful one. You know, when he held up this cup, and I guess it was a very precious cup, and he said, what's the best way to relate to this cup? It was kind of a rhetorical question, and then he answered it. He said, the best way to relate to the cup is as if it's already broken. So when you have it, you use it, you care for it, you benefit from it, but there's no attachment to it because you understand that it's already broken. So by extrapolation, (laughs) and this may be a little too strange for you, but if the cup's already broken and we should think of it that way, maybe we should think of ourselves as already dead. You know, and then everything in life is just this gift, and we don't have to be reactive to it. It's just, oh, well, this is nice, this is nice, because I'm already dead. Anyway, if you, if you don't like that one, you can let that one go. <laughs> this, is, this is a spur-of-the-moment uh, thought. <laughs> I don't think it's in the texts. <laughs> the Dalai Lama had, had a great teaching on the development of equanimity in terms of how we're relating to our unfolding life experience. He said, the value of an action is not measured by its success or failure, but by the quality of the motivation behind it. You know, well, that's tremendously freeing because mostly we evaluate our lives and what we do in terms of its success or failure. You know, did something work out or didn't it work out? And we feel good when it does and we feel badly when it doesn't. But here the Dalai Lama is saying that really is not the measure of the action at all. The measure is the quality of the motivation. Is the motivation wholesome or not wholesome? If it's wholesome, regardless of how it works out, because that's beyond our control. There are so many different conditioning forces at work. But if the motivation is wholesome, then the act has value. And so that's what we have to measure and assess our actions by. And that's tremendously empowering, because that's within our control, that's within our training.
The Buddha also talked about how equanimity is strengthened by associating with wise and equanimous people. So I think that's good to remember. You know, if we're always around very agitated people, it's going to have an effect on us, and we're, we're going to kind of absorb, to some extent, that agitation. And again, this, this is going back to the, the world of politics. I don't know if, when you're home, any of you watch the political news shows, but sometimes it's really astounding. You, you know, these panelists of people, and they're just shouting each other down. They're not listening to what the other person's saying or trying to have a reasonable discussion. They're just shouting at each other. And watching it, I can just feel, <laughs> I can feel the energetic impact of their agitation. So maybe it could be useful to watch these things as an advanced practice. <laughs> okay, can I watch this and stay equanimous? But it really takes a lot of mindfulness, you know, because we are affected by the energy of people around us. And then, of course, we can develop equanimity as one of the Brahma-viharas. There is a specific meditation practice, just as with metta or compassion. There is a specific practice of equanimity that we can do in a very intensive way, and it does strengthen and develop this quality. Now, equanimity is one of the ten perfections of the Buddha. It's one of, it's one of the qualities that the Bodhisattva had to bring to perfection to achieve Buddhahood. You know, and the others, just to remind you, things like generosity and morality and renunciation and wisdom and loving-kindness and patience and resolve and equanimity. And this is what Lady Sayadaw said about these perfections. He said, it is patience and equanimity that are the mainstay for all the others. That only when we have set ourselves up with patience and equanimity can we expect to fulfill the rest. You know, so it's good just to recollect how important this quality is combining it, and it's very closely related to patience. When there's patience and equanimity, all of the perfections, all of the paramis come about. So it's just to remember equanimity is that imperturbable and balanced state of mind with an impartiality that embraces all. It embraces everything. And the Buddha summarized all this when he said, there's no higher happiness than peace. And equanimity is at the heart of that. So let's sit for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.